people. They have a trust issue. They want somebody to lead them in battle. Instead of the Lord, they want somebody they can look at and say, that guy, he's the tip of the spear. And they have an identity issue. They want to be like all the other nations. God has set them apart as holy. And they're having an issue with that. They want to be like everybody else. But God gives them what they want. God gives them a king. Saul, very clearly, God picks Saul to be the king of Israel. He's anointed by Samuel, who's a prophet of God. His track record is 100%. His spotless scorecard. Never has he missed the Lord that we see recorded in the Bible. And Samuel tells Saul, you're going to be the king. And he dumps oil on his head to anoint him. And then... God chooses Saul by lots from all of the men of the nation, 600,000, 700,000, a million, whatever it is, Saul is chosen out of all of those guys. The, the odds are not great, and, and God chooses him. So he has this political choosing through lots and this spiritual choosing through Samuel. Saul's the king, and he's what Israel wanted. He's a king like all the other nations have, and he's a great military leader. He leads the people in battle, and, and they're, they're successful. They win, and again, he's a king like all the other nations. He's physically imposing, a head taller than everyone else. He's handsome. He's from a prominent family, and like the kings of all the other nations, he does not have a relationship with the Lord. If he has one at all, it's very it's shallow. It's superficial. I, I'm not sure that he has any connection uh, vitally to the Lord at all. And today we're going to see God's final rejection Uh, of Saul and the way that plays out. So uh, chapter 15, starting in verse one, Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. We just talked about that. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So clear. I'm the prophet. Listen to the message of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Saul, Samuel wants to make sure Saul knows this is God speaking. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. We'll pause there. So that command for you may make you queasy that God is saying annihilate this tribe. But it's clear, right? There's not a lot of wiggle room. The word in Hebrew is haram, H-E-R-E-M. I don't know how you say it. That's how I'm going to say it. And it was, uh, it's this type of warfare uh, where God is saying, it's all mine. Normally, Israel, when they would fight, the soldiers would get the spoils. They would get some of the animals they could take home. If there were people, they would capture them and bring them back uh, to work uh, as slaves or servants in their fields or in their homes. When God issued this, it's, it's called a total ban, haram. When he said, this is what we're doing, nobody gets anything. It's all the Lord's. In, in these instances, and they're not rare, it's not every time, they're not rare. What God is saying is, I'm judging a nation and I'm using this army to do that. This army, these people, their responsibility, their job is to judge this nation. And the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe. They were in the land of Canaan, and they attacked the Israelites very early in the Israelites' time in the promised land. You can read about it in Exodus 17, and then you can see it again in Deuteronomy. I think that's what's up on the screen, is Deuteronomy 25. Forty years after the attack, God reminds Moses before they enter the promised land, don't forget about the Amalekites. Remember what they did. They attacked you, your stragglers. They attacked you, and you were weary. 
They did not fear the Lord. That maybe that's a good military strategy, but they kicked the wrong dog. And God said, I'm, they're going to be judged for that. You reap what you sow, and they're going to be judged. And so several generations later, through the prophet Samuel, God says, now's the time, Saul, this is your responsibility. I'm judging that nation for the way they treated my people several generations ago and for their continued wickedness. Again, the, the command itself may make you queasy, but there's no wiggle room. God was very clear on what he wanted. Men, women, children, infants, every animal. You kill everything and you burn the rest of it. That's what this ban meant. So verse 4, Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away. Leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So Saul musters 210,000 people. They attack the Amalekites and they harem. They totally destroy all the people except for the king. And they totally destroy. Another translation would be the garbage livestock, the weak and the despised, the garbage animals. Those they totally destroyed. They kept the best. Before they attack, he says to the Kenites, that was another non-Israelite tribe. Moses actually married into that tribe. And he said to them, y'all need to get out of here because this is what's happening. And y'all don't fall under this ban. The Kenites were actually kind to the Israelites right after the Amalekites attacked them in Exodus 17. And because of that kindness, they're spared. And so uh, listening to that, God's command and Saul's response is, let's grade him. Who gives Saul an A for obedience? A B? A C? Average? D? F? F! That's what God gives him. Partial obedience is disobedience. When your parents told you to clean the room, they meant make your bed and pick your clothes up off the floor, right? It's all, or it's not. It's either clean or it's dirty. They're either totally destroyed or they're not. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret. That'll be a key word for us. We'll come back to that. This is God speaking. I regret that I've made Saul king. Why? Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel's angry at Saul, not at the Lord. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, 
did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalek, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He's rejected you as king. It would be comical if it wasn't so sad. It's like you just caught your kid. There's three people involved. God, he regrets. The Hebrew word is naham. We don't have a great word for that in English. If you have a King James, it says he repents. Your Bible may say uh, he relented. It's a deeply emotional word. God was, was deeply troubled that he'd made Saul the king. It was very disturbing to God that he'd made Saul king because of the choices Saul was making. So God is nahalming. Samuel is ticked. He's burning with anger at Saul. And Saul, I don't, even, I don't know what you say about him. Maybe he's, he's delusional, maybe. So think, he's on his way to worship at Gilgal and he makes a monument to himself. Like, why Why not? As you're going to worship God, would you, who thinks like that? To make a monument to yourself on the way to worship God. And when, I, either he's a great liar or he really doesn't get it. Samuel comes down and you can imagine y'all have all gotten in trouble at least once. So like remember the face of your mom or your dad in that moment. That's what I'm thinking Samuel's face looks like. And Saul runs out and he's like, I did everything that the Lord asked me to do. And Samuel says, and why do I hear animals in the background? And Saul says, that's the soldiers. You know, they just they brought the best to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And Samuel says, enough, Saul, by your own admission, you are from the weakest clan in the weakest tribe of, of Israel. And God picked you. I anointed you. He picked you out of all the men. Remember, you were hiding behind the baggage and the lots fell on you. He anointed you, gave you everything that you needed in order to be successful as the king. He gave you a very clear word, destroy the tribe of the Amalekites. They are wicked, wicked people. You are executing my judgment on them. And you, you didn't do it. But I did do it. I wiped out all of the people and brought the king back. We wiped out the garbage livestock. And the soldiers brought the others back in order to sacrifice. And Samuel says, do you, do you really think God cares about the, de- about the sacrifice? Is that what you think? God cares more about you sacrificing animals to him than he does you obeying him. No. Obedience. That's what God is looking for. The animals mean nothing to him. He's looking for people who obey. Your rebellion, your willful disobedience, it's just as bad 
as divination, which is a capital crime. Your arrogance, your presumption in disobeying God and reinterpreting a black and white command. That's just as bad as idolatry, which is a capital crime. That's what he's saying. What you've done is as bad as a capital crime. You've rejected God and he's rejecting you. Is it harsh? Too harsh. I don't think so. Saul's the king. It's a great privilege and there's massive responsibility. As you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you see really quickly the spiritual condition of the king determines the spiritual condition of the nation. There's always prophets in the mix, but for whatever reason, maybe because of their political or their military power, I don't know. But the king leads the way spiritually. The king does. If it's a righteous king, then the nation is righteous and God is blessing Israel during the the reign of that king. If it's a wicked king, the nation falls into sin and God is judging the nation during the period of that king. You can see it without fail as you read through 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Saul's the first. He's the template. He's the precedent setter. And the precedent he set is God doesn't care about obedience. You do what you want. Again, you can disagree with the command, but there's no gray. It's either totally destroyed or it's not. If you've left the king, then you haven't totally destroyed the people. If you kept the best of the livestock, then you haven't totally destroyed the livestock. I said sheep, cattle, donkeys, there's nothing left. There's no room for interpretation. You're either obeying or you're not. There's There's no part way. And so he's rejected. As Saul goes, so will go the nation if God doesn't step in. And again, he's the first king. A lot of privilege, massive responsibility that goes with that. And Saul, you can see in in his uh, interactions with Samuel, I don't know his obedient. I fulfilled the mission of the Lord. I wiped out all of these people. It was the soldiers. They brought back the animals. I don't know if he's blaming them. I don't know his tone of voice. Maybe he is. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. They follow him. He's responsible for their behavior. I don't know if he's blaming them or if he genuinely doesn't get it. Doesn't realize the the gravity and the seriousness of what he's done. And if that's true, then he doesn't deserve to be the king anyway. If he doesn't get When God speaks, and that's a big point at the beginning of chapter 15. Samuel says, hey, remember me. I'm the guy who anointed you to be the king. God told me before he told you. This is the word of God to you. Three, Three different ways. It's communicated very clearly. This is what God wants you to do. And when Samuel speaks, he speaks in the first person for the Lord. I am going to annihilate the Amalekites. I'm judging them. This is about my judgment on them. And again, Saul doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. He's arrogant. Whatever it is, there's a huge disconnect. And so he's rejected by the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. 
Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So I I don't know what you think about that. It seems pretty uh, superficial to me. Saul acknowledges his sin, which is a step in the right direction. There doesn't seem to be any genuine desire in Saul's heart to reconcile or be restored to the Lord. It seems like what he's concerned about is his public image. Samuel is the leading spiritual figure of the day. He's a national figure, massive influence. And it seems to me that what Saul is most concerned about is that publicly there's no break between he and Samuel. He wants Samuel to come back to Gilgal to worship publicly in order that all the people, the elders who are the leaders of the people, and the people will say, oh, Samuel and Saul, they're good. Samuel and Saul are, they're, 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 they're good and so, and so Saul's good. If there's a public break, in the way I'm reading it, Saul is concerned that it will undermine his authority. Doesn't seem to be, a, again, a genuine desire. There doesn't seem to be contrition. There doesn't, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that he sinned. There doesn't seem to be any genuine repentance there. He seems to be more thinking about the consequences of what he's done uh, in terms of his own public persona than anything else. And you can see that the desperation is kind of grasping at Samuel as Samuel leaves. That, that to me is a picture. Again, it's, it's what Saul is desiring is, Samuel, you maintain contact, maintain relationship with me. We need everybody to know that we're, we're still good and on the same page. And what Samuel says is it's done. You've rejected God. He's rejected you. It's not going to, it's unalterable. God doesn't change his mind. There's that same word, Naham. Interesting. We just opened with God Nahamed that he made Saul king. And now we see Samuel saying, God doesn't Naham. He's not a man that he would Naham. This one doesn't get changed. And so Saul is ultimately rejected. And we'll see how that plays out here. Postscript. Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the, of the Amalekites. Agag came to, him, came to him in chains and thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. So Samuel is obedient where Saul wasn't. Then Samuel left for Ramah, that's his hometown. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted, there's that word again, the Lord Nahamed. That he had made Saul king over Israel. So uh, even if you see this as harsh, you should recognize the emotion involved. Samuel is ticked at Saul for his behavior. But when he leaves, he's mourning for Saul, which is a deeply emotional word. God Nahams, which again is a, an, an emotional word. Note, if you notice, you may have picked up on it. When Saul refers to God, he always says, your God. He never says, my God. Three different times. When he's talking to Samuel, he says, we, the, the soldiers saved these animals twice to, to worship and sacrifice to your God. Go back and let's worship your God. There's no relational connection between Saul and God. And yet God is, is deeply moved 
deeply regrets what's happening with Saul. So I don't want you to see this as them kind of washing their hands and being done and, and good riddance. There's, if it's okay to say, there are broken hearts involved from both Samuel and the Lord at the behavior of Saul and what his behavior has led to, which is his ultimate rejection as king. I, I told you when we started on Saul, I think, he, I think God picked him, uh, and I think he had every opportunity to be successful. I don't think he had to fail. I think God gave him everything he needed. He gave him his spirit. He anointed him. He gave him Samuel, a prophet, and he gave him... If you remember when when Saul was installed, Samuel wrote down kind of a contract. Here's what it means to be the king. He had everything that he needed to be successful. But he never, ever developed uh, trust in the Lord. He never developed a relationship. And that's ultimately what undid him. Uh, I just want to talk about one thing in terms of a takeaway. Before I do, let me give you a book recommendation. God has a name. It's a good book. That guy John Mark Comer is a pastor out west. And he takes that passage, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is God's self-disclosure to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he goes through that whole section um, a phrase at a time. And what he says is this is the most quoted passage of the Bible in the Bible. The Bible quotes this more than it quotes any other passage. And so he, kind of, he works through it and he talks about the name of God. It's accessible and readable, and it's also well-researched. Uh, so I'm 42, and I have a master's degree in this, and I like it. And my 17-year-old senior in high school is reading it, and she likes it. So it spans the gap. I mean, it spans that whole spectrum. Like, you'll get something. You'll, you'll get something. You'll learn something from it. There are times the guy's a little general... It's well, it, it is well written and you'll grab something out of it. And uh, some of what I'm going to share today, today was kind of was inspired by this book. And that's, I, I just want to put that out to you. Some of you are starting small groups. It may be a book you'd want to use in your small group. Maybe you're looking for something to read. Your kids are going back to school. You got a little bit more free time. It'd be a great thing if you want uh, to do that. So this idea, does God change? Does God Naham? Our section opens, God Naham, that he made Saul king. Our section closes, God Nahamed, that he made God Saul king. And in the middle of it, verse 29, God, it's not, um, God does not Naham. God is not a man that he should Naham. So what does that mean? We see two times where it says God does, and we see two times where it says he doesn't within 25 or whatever, within uh, about 20 verses of each other. So... What's, what is that? What's going on? Does God change? The fancy word is, is God immutable? You don't, don't use that word, but that's the word. Does God change? Is he changeless or does he change? And the answer is no. God, God doesn't change. And that's easy for most of us if you were raised in church to say, no, God doesn't change. He always is who he is. And there's some scriptures there up on the screen that say that very clearly. God remains the same. God says, I don't change. In James, we see God doesn't change like shadows. He's constant and consistent. You can count on him and you can rely on him. The essence of who he is as God never changes. And you can look at his nature and his character, his nature that he's personal, that he's relational, that he's omnipresent, that he's omniscient. Those things, are, those are always the same. He's eternal. 
in his character, the things that we name about him. He's loving and faithful and righteous. He's holy and compassionate and merciful. Those things are always the same. God is, he's, this is difficult to get your mind around. So God is perfect in who he is, and so he can't change. If God could get better on Tuesday than he is on Monday, then he's not God because there's room to improve. He can't get better. And God also can't get worse. If, if God uh, regressed from Tuesday to Monday, then he's no longer God on Tuesday because he's not perfect any longer. His perfections are complete. And so he, he, he cannot change at all. He can't get better and he can't get worse. His nature and his character remain the same always. God doesn't change. And again, for most of us, that's not a newsflash. But God does change. He doesn't change, but he, he does change. And you can see this. When you start reading in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you'll see time after time after time after time where God does change. He changes his behavior. God is personal and he's relational and he's chosen to be influenced by the people he's in relationship with. His character never changes and his nature never changes. But relationally, he changes often. We saw it here. He picked Saul. It was God's choice. Saul didn't interview. He didn't volunteer. God chose him. With a handful of years, he regretted his choice. Why? Because of the choices Saul made. God allowed himself to be influenced by the behavior of Saul. And he felt it. It's not academic. It's not intellectual. He felt it. Again, that's an emotional word. That word, when it's not used to mean relent, means take pity on. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a heart. It's a feeling word, not a thinking word. Saul impacted God because of his disobedience. Every person you're in relationship with affects you, if it's a love-based relationship. If you're in a love-based relationship with anyone, then you change based on whoever the other person is in that relationship. I remember I went to a funeral with a guy, and his wife had died, and they'd been married about 30 years. And he said, I don't know if I like to kayak. I said, like, what are you talking about? And he said, my, I, I kayaked because my wife kayaked. And now I don't know if I like it or if I just liked it because she liked it. She influenced him. And the same thing is true in every human relationship we have. And, and it's also true in your relationship with the Lord. And again, you see this throughout the Bible. Exodus 32 is an amazing, amazing chapter. Moses is up on the mountain. The Israelites make a golden calf with Aaron doing that. And it's, it's ridiculous. And God is ticked. And he says, this God who's slow to anger, it's his, they've lit his fuse. And what he says to Moses is, I'm wiping them out. And I'm starting over with you. I'm starting over with you. The rep, we're done. And what Moses says, and it's interesting if you read Exodus 32, Moses doesn't ask God. He says to God, relent. Naham, don't do this. And two, two verses later, Exodus 32, 14, God relented. He changed his mind. He nahamed because Moses said so. Moses, who says, I stutter, influences the all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal God. Fathom that. And you have more access than Moses 
because you live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Think about that. There's a famous passage in Jeremiah 18. I think it's up there on the screen or maybe it's already been and gone where God says, there are times where I set out and I'm going to judge a nation and that nation repents and I change my mind and I don't judge them. There are other times where I'm going to bless a nation and then that nation turns to wickedness and I change my mind. The behavior of these of people impacts what God is going to do. Again, it's, it doesn't lessen him at all. He's sovereign. He set it up that way. He said, I'm personal and I'm relational. I'm going to allow the people I'm in relationship with to impact me. He could have been Allah, who's not impacted by anything. But he's not. He's Yahweh. And he's chosen to be impacted by the people he's in relationship with. Your prayers and your behavior have consequences with him. In some ways, you could even see history pivoting. On the prayers and behavior of people. Think of Nineveh. The book of Jonah. Nineveh is a wicked, wicked city. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy to Nineveh. Tell them I'm coming and I'm wiping them out. And Jonah doesn't want to go. And he gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction. And the whole thing gets swallowed with the, by the fish and then vomited out on the land. And he does his job. Fulfills his calling. He's obedient. And he says to the Ninevites, this is 40 days. I bet he doesn't have any, no passion in his voice, probably whispering. 40 days. And then you're going to, God's going to wipe you out. And the king hears him and grabs on and he says to the people, let's repent. Let's fast. Maybe God will be gracious to us. And chapter 3, verse 10, it ends with God relenting him, nahaming, and not sending the calamity. And Jonah's mad. In chapter 4, he starts whining to the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says about God, I knew this about you. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were abounding in love. I knew that you nahamed from sending calamity. I knew that you relented from doing that. And that's why I didn't want to come, because I hate these people. They deserve to die. And I knew if I came and I preached and they repented, you wouldn't wipe them out. That's why I ran away. That's why I ran away. Because I want him to burn. Jonah knows something about God's character. He knows God is moved even by the behavior of wicked Ninevites. How much more so is he moved by the prayers and the actions of his sons and his daughters? His nature never changes. He's always eternal. He's always omniscient. He's always omnipotent. He's always personal. His character never changes. He's always holy. And he's always loving. And he's always compassionate. And he's always righteous. And he's always true. What does change is the way those unchanging characteristics are expressed. And the variable is us. What we pray and what we do. God is constantly adjusting his interactions with us to our response to him. You see that even for those of you who become Christians. That when you repented and you turned towards God, you went from being an enemy to being a friend. You went from being uh, at war with God in some senses to reconciled and at peace with him. He's still who he is. What changed was his dealings with you. Why did those dealings change? Because you changed. You repented. You received his grace. And so that changes everything. 
So what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? If we have a God who is both rock and father. You get the best of both worlds. You have a God who is eminently trustworthy. In the Old Testament, he's called a rock. Rocks don't change. He's constant. He's steadfast. There's security. You put your weight on him. You know he's always going to be loving. And he's always going to be good. And he's always going to be kind. And he's always going to be wise. And he's always going to be powerful. And he's always going to be. You know that. And that God who's a rock is also a father. And he's a father who says, he's not a genie in a bottle, but he says, I allow myself to be moved by my children. Go through the Bible. Look at the number of if-then statements. Those are conditional, where God says, I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. Or if y'all do this, then I'll do this. If I do this, then y'all do that. There's this give and take relationally with him. If-thens are throughout the Bible. Even words that seem like they're unalterable. Oftentimes there's an unspoken condition on those promises. Occasionally you see things like what we saw in verse uh, 25, 26, 27, 28. Where God says through Samuel, Saul, you don't, you're done. This one's not going to be changed. That's rare. What you often see in the Bible is God saying, this is what I'm doing unless y'all do something different. This is what I'm doing unless you ask me to do something different. It's giving people an opportunity to influence him. What's some, how do you respond? Super simple. You pray. That's what you do. You pray. Your prayers move God. It doesn't make sense to me. Us, we have access to the all-powerful and the all-wise. And we don't take advantage we go through our day in our own strength. We say, what is will always be. What, wh- why? Nothing in the Bible says that's true. We just assume, well, if God wants it to happen, it will happen. That is so not true. Not even close to true. It doesn't make any sense for Jesus to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, if God's kingdom is currently coming and his will is currently being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a stupid prayer otherwise. Why would we ask for something that God's already doing? It's in the model prayer for us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication is it's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. So ask. Whatever God wants will happen. No. No. The things that are guaranteed is God is Jesus will return. And he will judge everyone. Those things are locked up in Revelation. There's a whole lot of time and space between now and then. There's a whole lot of things that if we don't actively engage in prayer and obedience, they're not going to happen. One of my kids lost their retainer the other day and they couldn't find it. And I said, well, why don't you pray? That doesn't work. And I said, whether it works or not, you're not out anything. Either he leads you to the retainer or he doesn't. You don't have it now. You're not out anything. You're out 30 seconds. We don't pray because it doesn't work. You're not out anything. Worst thing that happens is he says no. And then you're right back where you are now. You're out a couple of minutes. What about the possibility of yes? Can that not pull you towards prayer? He's too slow sometimes 
But is at some point in the future better than never? We found the retainer last night. It was two days later. Two days is better than never. Not as quick as two minutes. We'll take it. I'm too busy. What are you doing that's more important than getting the God of the universe active? What? What? He does more in a second than we do in a lifetime. I got to fill out these reports. It's good. That's going to change the world. I'm, I'm, think about it. We, it's because we don't recognize the access. When you read Exodus 32, you're going to say, you're not going to put yourself in there. You're going to say, I'm not Moses. And you're not. You're better than him. You're better than him in terms of your access to God because you live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit of God dwells within you. Moses didn't have that. Everything with Moses was external. Yours is internal. Don't leave it on the table. What do you want to see? Ask him. Ask him. Again, he's not a genie in a bottle, but he's this father who says, what do you want? Influence me. It does not demean God at all. It does not in any way reduce his sovereignty. What he said is, I'm personal and I'm relational and I'm choosing to be influenced by my children. Just like any parent is. I don't feel it. Then ask him, God, I don't sense your presence. I want to. Or don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't pray. And ultimately what we're doing is we're believing a lie. Fundamentally, we don't believe we move God. If we knew that, you couldn't keep us from praying. If we knew who God was, this unchanging rock, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, compassionate, gracious, righteous, holy, and we knew he was a father who was influenced by his children, we would pray. Don't hear that as guilt. It's an area for us to grow. I want you to close your eyes and do this as we wrap up. I want you to pick one thing. August 1st, I believe, is on uh, Tuesday. So I want, you to, I want you to pick something. August 1st through December 31st. That's five months. For most of us who do pray, we're sprinters. We're not marathoners. God doesn't care about your level of emotion, but he does care about your level of commitment. Persistence matters to him. You may say, I don't know how to pray. If you've ever ordered food, then you know how to pray. You're asking for things. That's it. So I want you to pick an area. Your family, your school, your business, city, whatever. Where you want to see change between now and December 31st. Make it big enough that it's worth five months of your life. Physical, spiritual, relational, whatever. I want you to commit before the Lord this morning that you're going to pray about that for three minutes a day, three days a week. That's it. That's not even ten minutes. It's nothing. But it will get us moving. It's, it's training wheels.
Three minutes a day, three days a week for five months. If you're married, I want you to tell your spouse what it is. If you're here by yourself, tell your, tell your best friend. Someone who will check in with you. Someone who can help you, hold you accountable. Not beating you over the head, but just reminding you. You can set an alarms on your phone, whatever you've got to do. To remember, it doesn't have to be the same three days, or that, you figure that out. The pattern, the way it normally works, is you start with some level of energy. It's like a New Year's resolution. You start strong, you hit a wall around the Super Bowl, and you don't do it again. That's how we work. We run strong, we run fast for two or three weeks, and then life creeps up. We forget. If you can press through that, you'll see fruit. I promise that. I don't know how God will answer, but you'll see fruit. If you commit consistently over the next five months. Of course, you can pray about other things. You can expand, but I want you to keep that thing central. Put it at the top of your list. When you pray in Jesus' name, that means you're approaching the Father and the righteousness of Jesus. So it's basically like you're coming as Him. It's the authority that you have as a son or a daughter who's been adopted into His family. You don't need to cower. Don't pray for God's will to be done. He doesn't need you to ask Him about that. He only does His will. I want you to pray specifically for things you want to see happen. What if I pray for the wrong thing? Then he'll say no, and you'll move on. God, my prayer for the men and women in this room. Those of us who, as adults, still, we haven't, got, we, we haven't learned how to pray. We feel stupid or it feels like a waste or for whatever reason. God, I pray over the next five months that you would remind us of whatever it was that we committed to this morning. And God, that we would see fruit. I pray that we would run consistently and persistently in prayer. The enemy, the lies of the enemy, that our prayers are ineffective or you know, we missed a day and so it's, it's blown or any of those things. God, I pray that we can give in to those lies. All he's trying to do is sideline us. And God, we don't want that to happen. We want to take full advantage of the privilege of being your children. God, I pray for the kids who are in the room, the students, down to the elementary school children. God, I pray that they would learn at an early age the access that they have to you. Talk about the faith of a child, and some of that is metaphor, and some is there's, it's easier for kids to believe. And God, I pray that they would dream big and ask you to move in their schools and their teams. 
God, my prayer, my belief is on the end of the year when we're doing a thankful for. Everybody's going to have a testimony of something that you've done. It's not pressure on us to pray the right thing. It's how good you are. And God, I pray that you would do more than we could ask or imagine. God, I pray that you would move quickly. I pray that you would strengthen our muscles in prayer. That you would encourage us along the way. And God, that you would use the prayers of the men and women in this room to change a city and a world. In Jesus' name.